Are you interested in free theological training? Our flagship sponsor, Midwestern Seminary, offers free theological training through their For the Church Institute. This semester, they launched three new classes, New Testament 1 and New Testament 2 with Dr. Patrick Schreiner and Missional Leadership with Dr. Charles Smith. Both have been guests of the show. These classes, along with others they offer, The Story of Everything with Jared Wilson, The Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Maybe it's not morning where they are, Kyle. Yeah, how do you know? Like, it might not be morning there. It, but it, I know where you are. I'm not saying good morning to them. <laughs> I'm saying good morning to you. <laughs> I know where Jen is and I know where you are, JT, unless you guys are doing this from, you know, unspecified locations. Hey, but are you a morning person? Me? Yeah. Uh, depends. What time did I go to bed the night before? <laughs> okay, then you're not. Okay. What about you, JT? No, yeah, you're not. <laughs> no, I wish I was, though. I really wish I was. Because I'm not. Jesus was. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not a morning going. person, but people will be like, well, Jesus got up early in the morning. I'm like, well, I'm happy for Jesus. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I do that's not. That's not me. No, and it, it does. I feel like being a parent has made me more of a morning person. Sure. Like I kind of wake up every day around five and I have a decision to make. <laughs> and I usually make the decision to roll over. <laughs> but but like, be, but that that kind of morning person is more of like the survival morning person, not yeah, the that's thriving. that's different than the peppy. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is not me. Yeah. I, I don't mm-hmm. greet the day with a song, mm-hmm. you know, but I <laughs> yeah. do... I do greet the day, you know. A song of lament sometimes. Yes, a dirge. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, we are all excited, whether yeah, we're morning people or not, mm-hmm. uh, to jump into Exodus again today. I, I got to tell you, and I don't want, like, this is not me patting us on the back, but I've really enjoyed the first few episodes we've recorded on Exodus. Like, I feel like I'm learning a ton. Yeah. I feel like. It just feels so good to be in this story. Like yeah. it's just so rich. I think that uh, there uh, every I feel like little detail of the narrative is packing a punch in such a significant way. So the first few episodes of this season have been a blast for me. I don't know about you guys. I'm having a great time. Well, we know you are, but that doesn't surprise anybody. That's on brand. JT, how you feeling? How's your temperature? When do we get to systematic theology? Oh my gosh! No, okay. I'm I, I'm joking. I love it. I, I actually think. Uh, I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back. Like Kyle said, these have been some of my favorite episodes we've ever recorded. Yeah. I feel like there's, we're, we're all able to be in our strong kind of spaces and learn from each other. Like I'm learning in all of these episodes. There's been no Genuinely. fighting like, yet oh, either. There's been, we've all that's been like, true. Mm-hmm. we'll see. Well, it's a it's long because book. Kyle changed his mind in the last episode about God's accommodation <laughs> language. I was ready to go, Kyle, <laughs> but you, uh, I have never you, been uh, on the, fence you've learned, that. which is great. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, well, today, uh, we are talking through the Holy call, uh, when God calls Moses at the burning bush. And so to get us started, Jen is going to read Exodus chapter three, verses one through eight. 
Okay. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I love it. Is that where you told me to stop? I kind of got a little lost. It I is. Just kept but, on going. It is. But did you see what I did there? I, I Were you I, trying to get me to say your names <laughs> that were hard? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. Oh, man. I was praying. I was praying no. imprecatory prayers not over today. here, sister. I felt not like I was today, like, Kyle Lord, Worley. tie up her tongue, please. No, he did not. Goodness, man. I the Lord, it. You did, honestly. <laughs> I got to read the Bible out loud more. Okay. All right. <laughs> Uh, I told I told you in one of the previous shows. Start reading the Bible out loud. That has come from painful lessons learned. Audience, I'm just going to tell you here: read the Bible out loud. Hey, who uh, among us has not uh, had a had an awkward name mispronunciation? That is true. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, okay. So this is a fascinating passage. Last episode was a long one. I have a real sense that this one might might put us up there as well, because there is so much here. Um, when we, before we encountered Moses before, or I'm sorry, the last time that we encountered Moses before Exodus 2, 23 through 25, which kind of pans out. If Moses became the principal figure in Exodus chapter two, the birth, the birth story, the deliverance story, Pharaoh's daughter, all of those things, Moses fleeing to Midian, it kind of breaks away from the action. And that's what we covered last episode. You know, we're following along with the story of Moses. And then there's almost like a little editorial. It's almost like uh, Exodus two twenty three through 25, which we covered last episode is like a but over here, this was happening, you know? Um, so Moses has fled to Midian because he killed an Egyptian taskmaster, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when we get to Exodus 3, wow, has there been a big shift in what Moses' life looks like, right? I mean, Jen, what's the big, what's the biggest shift that comes right out of the gate? He was this, now he is this. Uh, well, he was ex- he was in the house of Pharaoh. He was yep. living large, and then he flees and ends up. Well, he meets a girl, so that's you know that's that's great. Gets yep. gets married, um, and rolls into the family of Jethro, who, if you noted, is a he's a priest of Midian. So that means he's not a priest of Yahweh. He is he's a pagan priest of some kind. Um, and so apparently uh, nobody told Moses about only um, going on courtship arrangements with other Christian <laughs> girls. He is missionary dating and he ends up marrying. Um, wow. I, I'm way off the rails now. Okay. so <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, I did not. When I threw it to you, sister. I, I just want to stir up. It's going to be a non-controversial episode. I just need to throw in a little bit of heat there. Perfect. Okay, so. Anyway, where were we? Uh, yeah, so he's he's out tending sheep on a mountainside, uh-huh. um, and uh, you know, which I've I've often said is ironically going to prepare him for his his mission that yeah. is about to be given to him. 
and um, he hears the voice of God. He, yep. he actually gets the day that we all say we want. If God would just tell me what to do, I would do it. Yeah. That's what we see here. Yeah. I mean, he's gone from an Egyptian prince to a shepherd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a mm-hmm. big change. I, I I can't imagine Moses's like, like, gosh, a psychological exam, a therapeutic exam of Moses tending the flocks mm-hmm. and the fields of Midian mm-hmm. would be fascinating. We don't get a lot of the interior aspect of Moses's character. There's some mm-hmm. of it that I think plays itself out in mm-hmm. the conversation at the burning bush. I think we get a, a strong sense mm-hmm. of what Moses thinks about himself, mm-hmm. but man, you think about just how jarring and strange Moses's experience is up to this point in the story, right? Yeah. Tr- like ends up in Pharaoh's house through a basket in the water and now ends up in Midian among the yeah. pagans, not his people, marrying among them, tending their flocks. And now Yahweh is going to speak to him. And and don't miss, obviously, the parallels here to the life of Christ. You know, I think think about Philippians 2, that Christ leaves the highest place to go to the lowest place. And what do we see? We see Moses leaving the highest place to go right. to the lowest place. And he what does he do? He becomes a shepherd. And mm-hmm. so there's a whole lot happening here thematically that we won't get into today. But, but just um, pay attention um, to exaltations and humiliations. And I don't mean humiliation in the way that we often think of it, but I mean, pay attention to when a character uh, in the, in the Bible is exalted or, or humbled, because it's usually pointing you towards something uh, in the life of Christ. That's true. And I think that another, uh, like, we're going to get into this a little bit, but I think another unique uh, parallel in the rest of the story of the Bible is the story of David. Mm -hmm. Um, the unexpected ruler of God's people discovered tending the fields where nobody Mm -hmm. thought to look Mm -hmm. like, you know what I'm saying? Like if there was anybody who had kept the faith in Israel, who was still enslaved in Egypt, do you know what they probably weren't thinking? God is going to send us a deliverer from the sheep fields of Midian. Mm Mm-hmm. Just like the people of Israel on the front lines sitting there with Saul looking at Goliath aren't thinking the hero king is going to come and who's it going to be? Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be the little kid brother who got left Mm -hmm. back. So I do think that kind of unexpected, this is the story with Gideon as well. I mean, like there is like a motif throughout scripture that, Hey, salvation, God's chosen King, ruler, rescuer, redeemer, deliverer is not coming from where you think he might be coming from. It's unexpected. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that encounter here. So we, we we hear that Moses is tending these fields, and it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning. And it says, Moses turned aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned, and then the Lord speaks to him. God called out, uh, 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 called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then the the rest of it there is some notes about the holiness of God's presence in this place. And so mm-hmm. what I want to maybe just start here with is to, to, to name the most specific thing and to trace it a little bit. Where else do we find fire in the story or throughout the story of scripture? Because it comes up a lot, right? JT, what yeah. are some of the other places that we're discovering fire as a part of the story of the Bible? Yeah, it comes up a lot. Uh, and I, I'm going to highlight fire specifically, but one of the things that I think in kind of our contemporary world when we think about fire is we think about heat. One of the things in the ancient Near Eastern world that they would have thought about with fire is what? Light. 
light. Mm -hmm. Light. We don't think about uh, fire and light as often because we have electricity Mm -hmm. and you can flip on a light switch. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the same way that they would have thought about fire then. This is not just a source of heat or burning something or cooking something. It was also a sort of reading something or seeing something. Mm -hmm. And so fire has a kind of a broader context in the Old Testament. Of course, we see light in the very beginning when God creates light and darkness. We see, we talked about this in the last episode, God basically manifesting himself as a, a, a fire and a kettle kind of going through this covenantal yep. ceremony with Abraham. And then we are going to see the uh, fire and light come up here as God leads his people in the wilderness as a pillar of fire mm-hmm. at night. Uh, and one of the things that I think is really important for us to highlight here is how Jesus in John chapter 8, the God's people are in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Succot or the Feast of Tabernacles. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing there is remembering how God led them uh, in the wilderness mm-hmm. and provided dwelling places for them in the wilderness and how he was with them uh, as fire and light in the wilderness. And he says something very specific to them. He says, I am the light of the world. Yeah. And so one of the things Jesus is doing there is is kind of uh, helping them remember all of this biblical and covenantal history of how God has been with his people in the wilderness by light and fire in covenantal moments and also in moments in the wilderness. And he, what's interesting here is he doesn't say uh, before Moses was, I am. He says before Abraham was, I am. In this very chapter, even remembering what we talked about in Genesis chapters 12 to 17 about him being the very God who was with Abraham mm-hmm. as this pillar uh, or this this moment of fire going through here. And so when God, what we're going to see here in Exodus chapter 3, and I want to want to see it to verse 14 here in a minute, is God is naming himself for the first time, and Jesus names himself with that name in John chapter 18. So this is one of the most pivotal moments in biblical history of, of, of uh, we highlighted this, I think it was two or three episodes ago. We also always want to pay attention to the human intentions of what an author like Moses is writing down. But when it comes to fire and light here, we see uh, the intention of God, the Holy Spirit, authoring something and connecting themes from Genesis all the way to John chapter 8. And we'll also see Revelation chapter 22 is we no, no longer have a need for light mm-hmm. because who is our light? Mm-hmm. That's right. God is. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is a significant thing, this this fire and light motif. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. The um, I think one of the things that is interesting about the passage is that when Moses is pulled into it, um, pulled into this encounter, God tells him, right? Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then he said... I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And it says Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is all, this this idea of God's presence descending in glory or splendor or fire is also something that we'll see in this narrative as well at Sinai, mm-hmm. which there is a, a little bit of a parallel here in that the burning bush and Sinai um, are both invitations for Moses to come near, but not too close. And to be mindful about what is required to be in the holy presence of God, fire being a sign of something that refines and and purifies. Um, And so part of the encounter here does seem to be an indication of like, I'm calling out to you, but your approach to me is not just how you would approach just anything, right? It's not just like if Jethro was calling you from the fields, you could walk up to Jethro without having to worry about the approach. If you're coming Mm -hmm. towards me, you're going to have to be mindful about where you're at and who I am. 
Well, again, we have to keep in mind how the structure of Exodus is laid out because this is a, still a part of the of the micro telling of the macro story that we're going to hear. And so if you trace where we are, um, we have Moses who has been called out of Egypt into the wilderness. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. And so what we're seeing is a micro version of what we will see in macro when Israel is called out and comes to Sinai. And I think that for one thing, this scene, this scene is meant to be that spoiler alert of, hey, this is where I'm taking you. But also when Moses has this encounter with God in the very place where he's going to lead Israel to, I think when he gets back to Sinai and God descends in smoke and lightning and thunder, it's, it's the burning bush on steroids. Like it's, yeah. it's, this scene um, just played out in 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 a in, in a magnitude um, that I would imagine Moses couldn't have anticipated. But then, what do we see? We see all of that same imagery accompanying um, the the last things in in the Book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, that idea that JT was talking about about God's presence and smoke and fire that's going to go all the way through for us. But at this point in the story, what we're seeing is the small telling of the story that then becomes the larger telling of the story when the whole nation comes to the foot of the mountain. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. You know, one of the things that um, I, you know, I, I mentioned this book uh, a couple episodes ago, but I've been reading it and it's been really interesting. This uh, book uh, called Founding God's Nation by Leon Cass. And I thought this was really interesting uh, how he describes just the narrative details here of this story. Um, he says, Moses approached the bush in wide eyed wonder to see a natural sight. This was an Egyptian level of wonder, but shrinks from seeing his father God in Hebraic awe. So basically Mm -hmm. he approaches the burning bush with a sense of like, what could this possibly be? But then after he hears that it is the God of his fathers, something he Mm -hmm. probably loosely had an idea of, now his reaction is to hide his face. And there is a theme um, throughout scripture of encountering holiness or holy ground or holy spaces and hiding one's face. This this comes up in other places. What are some of the other places where we see this throughout the rest of the story of the Bible? Because it's it's not, it, it, it happens more than once. Well, again, it's interesting. I hear this passage taught a lot and people are like, yeah, and he hides his face and, you know, 
he didn't, you know, it's kind of like, why is that his response? Well, it's the right response. He has the mm-hmm. right response to right. beholding the glory of God. And later in the story, he's going to ask God, show me your glory. And God is going to hide mm-hmm. him in the cleft of the rock. And there's a whole lot going yeah. on there. And we're probably going to get to talk about it. But um, again, think about the micro to macro. How does Israel respond when they see all of Sinai um, and smoke and fire and thunder? First of all, they're told to consecrate themselves, right? right. And they're told to wash themselves. And so like the, in the, we see here, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. The nation of Israel will make themselves ceremonially appropriate, you know, ready to, to receive the word of the Lord when they come to the foot of Sinai. But their reaction is, Moses, you go talk to God. If he speaks to us again, we will die. And then God says later in Deuteronomy, when this is all being remembered, he says, they were right to think that. Yeah, that that's, that's true. Right. Uh, and so mm-hmm. uh, I think we're seeing all of that set up. And then, then we see it, you know, you see it in the Old Testament in various places where people, uh, Isaiah, probably the, the yeah, most um, uh, recognizable space, Isaiah chapter six, where he sees a vision of God high and lifted up and he's immediately aware of his sin. Um, but you see it in the New Testament it, that that idea is transposed or laid onto the person of Christ. And when people mm-hmm. recognize him for who he is, they have a very similar response. Um, Peter in the boat with the miraculous catch of fish saying, away from me, Lord, from a sinful man. You know, Saul on the road to Damascus. You know, there are a lot of um, places in the New Testament where we see it. Even some of the angelic images that we find yes. in the New Testament of the covering of the eyes and the mm-hmm. face of angels mm-hmm. in the heavenly places. I, I do think that there is a witness throughout scripture that when you encounter the holy presence of God, you have to orient yourself around it. God is mm-hmm. gracious to draw near, but when he draws near, everything has to change around you. And I think that just like you said in miniature, what's happening here uh, at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai with Moses, when God's presence begins to tabernacle among his people, not no longer in a burning mm-hmm. bush, but now in a mm-hmm. mobile version of Mount Sinai. That's what I like to call the tabernacle, mobile Mount nice. Sinai. Uh, nice. But even in the course of that, everybody in like the Israelite community has to fundamentally change how they think about cleanliness and purity and holiness in relationship to the presence of God in their midst. And so they're not always covering their face, but the covering the face is an indication that scripture often uses to try to tell the reader, when you encounter the holy presence of God, the right response is not to think, yeah, you know what? Mm -hmm. I deserve to be here and to move (laughs) presumptuously towards his presence. Well, we need to interject here that, you know, you look at the the tabernacle and the temple, they have a curtain, there's a veil between the place mm-hmm. where the, the manifest presence of God, the smoke and fire uh, would have dwelt um, and, and the humans who are going to interact. And so um, when we understand that that too is that reaction of, I can't yep. look on a holy God, then we understand with new significance, the tearing of the veil at mm-hmm. the crucifixion of Christ. Um, it does mean that we have access to the very presence of God. And so while it doesn't mean that we now just, you know, it says we, we can boldly enter in, but what it doesn't mean is like, yeah, I, I belong here and this is no big deal. It means, right. do you remember how it was? Yes. Because look how it is now. And so I think that, you know, those, those um, the emphasis that we see in the Old Testament matters if we're going to understand the enormous gift, the, the enormous significance of what happens at, at uh, right. Christ's death. So in, in the verses that follow this, that Jen began to read in verses seven through verse... 
12, and I want to get us to verse 14 and talk about the name of God, but I, we can't pass this up. What we see in verses 7 through 12 is really, uh, it's Moses being told something that the reader in the, in the course of Exodus has already been told, which is God has heard the groanings and the cries of his people in Egypt, and he's going to redeem, deliver, and rescue them. Now, Moses gets greater specificity, specificity the reader did not get in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, and specificity that is attached to the promises that God had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he's giving that, he's, he's giving him, this is what I'm about to do, and I'm going to use you to do it. And Moses before, I think this is important because there are two identity questions that Moses asks in this passage. And this is the first one. In response to hearing about all this from God, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And this is important because we're getting a sense here of Moses's own grappling with, okay, what does it actually mean for me to go? Um, this almost to me sounds a little bit like the psalmist, you know, who is man that you are mindful of him, oh God, right? Uh, you know, this almost seems a little bit like the 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 doubting curiosity of uh, Gideon of like, wait, you're talking about, you're calling me to go do this? Like, I don't know that you picked the right guy. I'm a shepherd in Midian, <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I ran from Egypt. I killed a man there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, this is, is, it's very interesting, but God's response to him is what? I will be with you. He doesn't like, and I, I love this too, because it, it, it is a recurring theme that when Moses expresses doubt about his ability to do what God's calling him to do, God doesn't hype Moses up. Mm-hmm. God isn't like, Hey, no, you got this, man. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like Mm -hmm. God would not probably have been a great social media influencer uh, because (laughs) he's not going to tell you, you got this, man. You got this girl. You're worthy. You're you're big enough, strong enough, smart enough, Mm -hmm. tall enough, fast enough, whatever. He goes, no, I'm going to be with you. That's the great Mm -hmm. consolation. And then it leads to Moses asking another question, and which is what you wanted to get to, JT. Would you read? Uh, Exodus 3, verses 13 through 15. JT? Yeah, it says this, Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So Moses asked, who am I? And then he asked, like, who are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is interesting, right? Yeah, not to, not to, not to do too much biblical theology here, but I, I, I wanted to make a comment about what you guys were talking about, about hiding one's face. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you just talk to kind of contemporary kind of how, how do people learn about people? It's by seeing someone's face. Mm-hmm. Like someone's face is one of the greatest identity features that you can distinguish Kyle from Jen from JT. There's other distinguishing features that we have biologically and socially and in personality, but if someone's face is their identity in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so what we see Moses doing is hiding his face. But one of the major themes that we see in scripture is 
is God tells his people and we see God's people saying, I'm seeking your face. Mm -hmm. It's not just important that, that you know who I am, God, but I want to know who you are. Mm -hmm. So right after we see Moses hiding his face, he's now seeking the face of God, a command that uh, we're given in Psalm chapter 30, or, or we also see just to highlight here, Ezekiel 39 or other places, God is, God hides his face from his people, Mm -hmm. which is again, these kind of covenantal ups and downs of progressive covenantal theology of, of who is God and what is he doing? And so, so Moses, Moses just hit his face, but he's now doing the very thing that God's people are called to do, to seek the face of God, to seek the identity of who God is. And this is now God revealing himself and giving himself and showing him a sense, in a sense, not just his name, but his face. This is who I am. And what he says is, I am who I am. And now we could do some biblical theology here as we should, but also systematic theology. Really what God is saying is, and we'll get to this in the plagues and the wilderness, is God is saying, I am supreme over all things. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some sense, he's giving him the name above all names when he just says, I am, yep. right? I mean, this is like the, the 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 major like drop the mic moment for God to say, I'm not like the other gods. I'm not the God of the sun. I'm not the God of the rain. I'm not the God of, of uh, fertility. I am. I'm the God over everything. And again, Moses, having seen the gods in Egypt and now having seen the pagan gods, the pagan gods in Egypt and now the pagan gods in Midian, he is being confronted with the one God who has created all things and is now coming to redeem and liberate his people. And just to keep the parallel going for you from the miniature to the um, to the big screen, so to speak, um, if you think about this, Moses asks this question and God responds with, I am. In other mm-hmm. words, there are no other gods. And then take it mm-hmm. to Sinai. What are the first words that God says after he says, I'm the God of Abraham. I, you know, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Um, he says, you will have no other gods before me. So there's a right. strong correspondence between the yes. order in which these conversations play out. Yeah. The name is not only poetic, it's polemical. Like it's mm-hmm. not only mm-hmm. beautiful, it is making an argument. That's what polemical mm-hmm. means. It, it, it is good, it, Kyla. It's, so good. Well, yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, um, but I think in the statement you just made is not only poetic but polemical. polemical yeah. Yeah, there we go. Mm-hmm. And I, I and I think it's significant because there is a sense in which the name here is treated among the Israelites and among contemporary Jewish people and Orthodox Jewish communities as a name of immense wonder, beauty, and reverence. Um, Mm -hmm. and there are some, you know, uh, who would suggest it's not even proper to say Yahweh. Okay. This is funny. I, I was somewhere recently where they were singing a, it's, it's not a brand new song, but it's a song that's been around for a while. And it's that, uh, Lord of all the earth, we shout your name, shout your name. And then the chorus is Yahweh, Yahweh. We love to shout your name, O Lord. And I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that. Mm -hmm. Like if anything, it feels like we're like saying, uh, Hey Jews, we think you're dumb. Uh, but I mean, I, I, I don't know. That song makes me feel awkward. I'm like, do we love to shout his name? I don't know if we do or not. Yeah, it's interesting because what you might be totally unfamiliar with this, but Yahweh is one. When we think about the, the revelation of the name here, without getting too into the details on the Hebrew here, the first expression that God gives here is occurs nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible. It, it's not there. It, uh, and it is unique in its revelation and it's unique in its placement among the story of the Bible. And because of the reverence that attaches itself to the holy name of God and Moses' encounter with it and the circumstances surrounding it and the commandment to not take the name of the Lord 
word in vain, which contrary to public belief does not mean profanity, although I'm not encouraging you to use profanity. <laughs> it does mean to mistreat, misapply, uh, misname, or misidentify things in the life of this world as belonging to Yahweh when they don't, either characteristics, attributes, or um, acts, works, events. Some people are not comfortable talking using the name Yahweh. Um, uh, Jewish people, but also Messianic Jews. There's a large Messianic Jewish temple uh, in Richardson where I live. Um, so there's like a significant Messianic Jewish congregation. These are Jewish, by and large, Jewish men and women who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and we won't get into all of the details. They're not comfortable using the name Yahweh. I mean, Christians who aren't comfortable using the name Yahweh. Obviously, I am because I keep saying it over I, and I think over. I might be one of them, not, not like hardcore, but a little— I want to think about it, I think is how I feel about it. I think that's the right approach. And I think that we are supposed to think through that because this name is incredibly significant, right? Like, keep in mind, God had made the covenant with Abraham. God had made, uh, uh, he had worked powerfully in Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and none of them heard the name. Moses is the first one to hear the name Yahweh. And I think that is telling for how significant it is for the story of Israel's redemption, that mm -hmm. Israel needs to know who this God is. And I think it's important because Israel has been surrounded by false gods and false claims mm -hmm. to Godhood, right? So like Moses won't be the first guy rolling up into Egypt talking about a new God. That's been happening in Egypt for a long time. And the last time that any Israelite saw Moses, he was living in the house of Pharaoh. So if he comes in with God talk to the people of Israel in Egypt, and there's not any substance to it that corresponds with the ancient, so to speak, story of Abraham, I don't think that he's viewed as credible. I think part of the revelation of the name of God to Moses in this part of the story is like, there needs to be some credibility to Moses's call here. And the people of Israel need to see like, no, God is working in a unique way here. At least that's my take on it. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm off on that. There are, are other holy, go ahead. Well, you I'm to, thinking you about- You wanted to say something about Moses, Moses, didn't you? I do, because I think it ties into this whole question about the name of God set in juxtaposition to the name of Moses. And like you think about mm. um, this Moses, Moses, and the response, here am I. Well, most of us, anybody who like grew up in the church- you know, or anyone who's had um, some exposure to the Bible knows there are other stories like this. There are actually a number of other stories where God calls Samuel, Samuel, here am I. Um, you know, mm -hmm. even the calls of um, to Abram and to um, and, and Jacob when he has his dream, even though we don't hear the repetition of the name, you get the same here am I response and you kind of can assume that that's the underlying narrative. And then in the New Testament, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so that repetition of the name, um, it is it is a sign of um, emphasis, certainly, mm -hmm. you know, the way that we see things. It's like, hey, I'm talking to you, right? right but right. then I think what's significant about this conversation we're having about how do we then regard the name of the Lord is are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount mm -hmm. um, when he's talking about um, people who do ministry in his name. So in the name of Yahweh. And he says, not everyone mm -hmm. who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, not yep. here am I, 
but I never knew you away from me. And I think we need to understand like the interplay here is if you tread on the name of the Lord for your own purposes, then you, you need to be put on notice that it will not it will not go well for you. Yeah. Um, and so the way that God calls us is not the way that we call God. And I think this is something that we can can lose uh, lose sight of is, is we believe that we can, I think it's a, it's a sign here of over-familiarity, of yeah. assuming um, a relationship um, in, in, a, in a loose and casual way instead of recognizing that the God who called us is very much the God who is, we're seeing in this scene calling Moses right now. And that... Um, um, even in Christ, we still respond, uh, perhaps not by shielding our face and cowering in fear because we've not come to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, but still with reverence and yeah, awe. That's right. Now, JT, I want to come back to you because you went to John 8 and I, um, and, and talked about the passage where Jesus identifies. Now that we've gotten here to the name of God, say a little bit more about that passage and how it pertains to thinking through the fulfillment of the name of God here. Yeah, I'm not sure how much more I have to say than what I said there, but maybe now that we've kind of gotten through the passage a bit, I mean, God's people in John chapter 8, Jesus in John chapter 7 and his disciples are in Jerusalem, and they're celebrating, uh, it's called different things, but it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's called the Feast of Booths, and this is uh, uh, for God's people to gather together to remember that God provided shelter for them uh, and tabernacled with them while they were in the wilderness, that he was the God who was with them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and so God's people would gather together. I actually heard one Hebrew scholar say that if you were in Jerusalem in this first century, and Kyle and I got to got to see part of the second temple uh, when we were there just a few months ago, uh, it the, the the stone is so um, light, like it's it's a it's a bright stone. It's not like a dark stone that when fire would hit it at night, and there's so much of it, the city would have been almost like a city situated upon it. That's not what Jesus is referring to, but it's like you could see it. You wouldn't cover up this city. It just would have been. Uh, almost looking like it was daytime is what this Hebrew scholar once said. And so here we have Jesus uh, identifying himself as I am, and I am before Abraham was. And he's also saying, I am the light of the world or this fire of the world, mm -hmm. the one who is the creator God. I'm the one who is supreme over all things. And so the Jews that were there right in John chapter seven are like wondering, who is this guy? They're asking him about his identity. And some are saying, oh, he's just a good guy. Some are saying he's a false teacher. And here he is giving, giving his identity to his people about, I am the God who was with you in the wilderness. I am the God who was with Abraham in the desert of the Negev. I am the God who, who, revealed himself to Moses. We're not going to get into Christophanies here, but we could if we want to, but I'm not going to take yeah. us there. But Jesus is identifying himself as Yahweh, yeah. as the Lord here in John chapter mm -hmm. eight. And again, I, I mentioned this earlier, but just to kind of hopefully continue this thread for people is, is uh, God's people needed a light uh, in the darkness. But when exile ends at the end of Revelation and God is present with his people, we're told we no longer have a need for a sun or for mm -hmm. a moon or for mm -hmm. stars anymore. Why? Because God is our light. Right. God is our fire. Because mm -hmm. Jesus is going to be present with us forever, mm -hmm. making all things right and new again. Yep. That's good. That's good. So when we, the rest of Exodus 3 is really just a telling again, this is what is going to happen. I'm going to do these things. Tell this to the people I am has sent me to you. And here is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring you out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to bring you into the land of Canaan and I'm going to give this land to you. I'm going to do mighty wonders that are basically going to cripple 
Egypt and you're going to walk out having plundered the Egyptians. When we think about um, God's promises of deliverance and the strong promises of the victory of God, what God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel is not qualitatively different from what God tells um, us and other places in the story of the Bible, even in the New Testament, about what he's going to do to the kingdom of Satan. He's going to bind him up. He's going to cast him into the lake of fire. Uh, Colossians, he's going to, he's, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Jenna's reference, Revelation. Revelation is full of pronouncements of what the victory of God looks like, not just past, present, but also for the far future um, of the world to come. This here can read a little bit this is the first gloss in Exodus where you start to get the strong sense of, okay, God is going to deliver the people of Israel, but he's going to deliver them through judgment. Like judgment is still going to occur. And that is going to be that we got to weigh this now because it's not only going to be a big theme for the rest of Exodus, though the passages we're about to head into are certainly dealing with the judgment of God, which we do not typically like to give much attention to. But the rest of the Bible is pretty clear that God's glory, his salvation, his rescue, his redemption is not like an end round around judgment. Like it comes through judgment. And we don't like to think about that, but this is a mega theme. Uh, Jim Hamilton from uh, Southern Seminary has, has said that he believes the judgment of God or glory through judgment is the central organizing theme of the Bible. I, I, I don't agree with that, but I will say there's no doubt about it that judgment factors in heavily to how the story of the Bible unfolds. And ultimately, it crystallizes and is fulfilled in God taking upon himself and the Son of God, the judgment of God against sin. And so, uh, but I think it's important here that like, yes, this is the first indication in Exodus that we're getting that, okay, God is going to rescue the people of Israel, but it is going to come by way of judging and destroying, so to speak, the people of Egypt and namely the serpent king who rules over it. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's not inconsequential, I think, for reading the rest of Exodus or the Pentateuch or the rest of the Bible, because it comes up a lot. It comes up a lot. And it's if we, we feel like it's cringy. And um, I think the reason, I mean, there are good reasons we feel like it's cringy. We, uh, we have such strong associations with human systems of justice that it's hard for us to think in terms of perfect justice. And then I think, you know, we're, we're centuries removed from these stories. We're, th we're um, you know, 3,500 years removed from, from this culture. And so as we even walk through these portions that we'll have in the book of Exodus, it's important for us to um, be careful not to transpose our modern understanding of, of um, or our modern lenses on something that we haven't first fought to say, well, how yeah. would the original audience have heard this? Um, and what do we know about the way these stories are written that actually helps us to understand what is and is not being communicated in these stories? So hopefully right. we get a little chance to do some of that work too. And we're going to turn our attention to that in the next episode. Um, if you want to find more about Knowing Faith, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You may have heard about something that we talked about on the show uh, in one of the ads or something that we referred to. You can look at the show notes for links to our sponsor's webpage or on the Train the Church website under the Knowing Faith podcast to find resources, discounts, and products that we vet and believe in. Uh, leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts. I know that sounds crazy, but if you enjoy the show, if you profit from the 
show. Uh, if you've got questions that you'd want us to consider exploring, drop them into a review over on Apple Podcasts. I know it seems wild, uh, that, that that's a way that people will find the show. Um, and so if you want to help support the show and other people to find it, go check it out over there. If you want to find out how you can help make these shows possible for a growing audience, go to trainthechurch.com slash support. You can find out about some newsletters that we have, some cool behind the scenes stuff that we do for supporters of the podcast network. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.